Good evening. A reporter once asked Walt Disney how it felt to be so famous. He responded by saying, well, it helps me to get good tickets for a football game. And then he went on to add, but it doesn't help me command the obedience of my daughter or impress my wife or even help me to make a better shot in a polo game. In fact, he said, being famous doesn't even seem to help keep fleas off my dog. So if being famous doesn't give me an advantage over a couple of fleas, I guess it's not worth that much at all. Does our heart good to hear that kind of down-to-earth talk from someone that we admire, someone so famous? But I think the reporter's question was interesting. How does it feel to be famous? Because there's something about us average folks that we think those who are famous, that they've got something we don't have, some leading edge on happiness or some perspective or, or some kind of advantage. I've read that Henry Ford, the multimillionaire automaker, was often hounded by journalists. and They'd ask his advice on, on investments, on life, even on how to have a great marriage. And he would freely give out his thoughts on that, even advice on marriage, even though he was known to keep a mistress for years. I'm convinced that the average Christian is fairly convinced down deep that even spiritually, those who accomplish great things for God are not the ordinary, everyday person like you and me. They have something extra, more charisma, more talent, more something. That's why they're able to do that. And the truth is, we are surprised when God uses somebody every day to do something great everyday kind of people. You may have heard this story and wonder if it's really true. It, it really is true. Ken Sand writes in his book entitled Peacemaker, Thomas Edison, when he was in his staff, they were developing the incandescent bulb. It took hundreds of hours just to create a bulb to be able to test it. And that's why it was such a phenomenal uh, uh, experience. One day after finishing a bulb, Edison handed the bulb to an errand boy and ask him to take it upstairs to be tested. So the little errand boy grabbed the bulb, turned toward the stairway, and as he was going up the stairs, he tripped and fell and shattered the bulb. Everybody on the floor watched it in horror. Edison went over and said, it's gonna be all right. And he turned to the stunned co-workers and said, let's get started again. So they did. Hours, hours, hours later, hundreds of hours later, they made another bulb, and to everybody's astonishment, Thomas Edison turned to that same boy and said, would you take this upstairs to the room to be tested? And this time he did without incident. That story amazes me, and maybe you too, because you think, wow, that he gave it to that boy on the second time. But I'm also thinking, why did he give it to him the first time? If it took that much energy, that much effort, why didn't he take the bulb up to the testing room himself? Why would he trust that to an errand boy? Isn't it wonderful to consider the fact that God uses errand boys, errand girls, common everyday people to carry his light, run-of-the-mill people, Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. 
We like Hebrews chapter 11. It starts reading like a list of, of faith greats. And that's one reason why we love Hebrews chapter 11. It starts with Abel. We read that, of course, Abel is included. Uh, Enoch, well, he deserved it. Noah, well, of course, Noah's made the list. Abraham and Sarah, absolutely. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. In my Bible, in, in Hebrews 11, I've underlined and highlighted every one of these names. Moses, again, no surprise there. We love the story of Moses. These are like the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Faith. We even call this chapter that. I mean, these are the famous ones. These are the legends. And we know their stories. We remember their stories. So we're not surprised to see their names listed here. But we also read a list like this and maybe think, I could never do anything to be able to appear in a list like that. Because if you keep reading, there's two entries of some most unlikely candidates. If they were famous, it was not for being faithful. It was otherwise not being faithful. There's even a lady added to this list, not just a woman of faith like others, but not being a shining example, but notoriously sinful. But yet God wants us to know that faith can come from the most unlikely people. So follow along with me. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. I want us to cover these entries regarding the Israelites and then about Rahab, verses 29 through 31. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So what we've, what we've got in, in Hebrews chapter 11, especially in verse 29, is a shift from Moses to include the entire people of Israel. And notice, by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. When the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. We have in this one verse, 80 verses of the book of Exodus condensed. And really into one sentence. And the one thing we need to know is what makes Hebrews eleven twenty nine 29 stand out is that the Israelites are doing this. And as they're leaving Egypt, everything is going great. Their day of emancipation is here. Their moment of freedom is here. Everything is good until... They get word that Pharaoh's army is coming after them. And they're caught between the mountains on one side, the desert on the other, the Red Sea is in front of them, and now they hear Pharaoh's army is behind them. They're caught. They're pinned in. In Exodus chapter 14, they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. That does not sound like faith to me. And yet they're listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as having faith, as being people of faith. We'll come back to the response more in a moment. But first, critics are quick to point out the Red Sea, you may have studied this before, can also be translated the Sea of Reeds. And that comes up in a discussion, especially liberal theologians, when they try to discount the miracle and say, you know, if it was the Sea of Reeds, then this was nothing more than some shallow marsh land. And it really wasn't some supernatural act, some miracle of God for them to cross over. Well, if that's true, wouldn't that be a little embarrassing 
for the Egyptian army to drown in knee-deep water and just marshland. The Red Sea was deep enough, deep enough for the children of Israel to assume they're dead. They were pinned in. They didn't think they were cross. They could cross. The Red Sea was deep enough to drown the entire Egyptian army. And I love Moses' command to the people of fear, which transformed them into people of faith. Exodus chapter 14, verse 13 says, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And by the way, the one command repeats itself in both events here in Hebrews 11. At the Red Sea and then also at the city of Jericho, the people are told to be still. Or we might say, be quiet. Hush. Just listen. Stop talking. Here's the principle of faith. Faith is willingness to obey God even when it seems hopeless. Faith is willingness to obey God even when it seems hopeless. God calls, you remember the story, an east wind to blow, and in doing so it divided the waters into two. And remember that story so well, they would risk their lives by crossing in between the two. Now, at this point, you've probably already got Charlton Heston in your mind. You're thinking about it. You've got the white beard and all of that. It's easy for, easy for us to think that way. And there's this narrow passageway. The children of Israel, they're walking through, shoulder to shoulder, maybe two or three people wide. Maybe that's the way it happened. But thanks to expositors who evidently enjoy math, they estimated that the dry riverbed would have been hundreds of yards wide, maybe even a mile wide. And the line of people and wagons and cattle could have stretched nearly a mile as well. That was the crossing that was taking place. And that took faith. That crossing took faith. Exodus records that, this is where we have to try to think, what did this really look like? What was it like? Because Exodus records the water stood up like a wall. Like a wall. Imagine that sight. We're not told if the Lord caused the current to stop flowing downstream. If it did, then the waters upstream would have continued to grow and grow. Moses' words, what he wrote in the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 8, the deeps were congealed. According to Keel and DeLeach, the word refers to a solid substance. These are the walls that they walk between. Even the form of the water is now part of the miracle. And the Israelites walk through. At some point, every one of them has to decide, do I believe? Do I believe? I don't think anybody was taking pictures. I don't think anyone would forget what they saw what they experienced. Arthur Pink in his commentary said, there are three degrees of faith. The first is the faith that receives, like empty-handed beggars would receive the good that Christ would offer them. The second is the faith that reckons, that is you count upon God to fulfill his promise. Whether you do anything or not, you reckon. 
And the third is the faith that risks. That is, it believes in God's promises and also dares to do something for God. This is the daring faith of David running out to meet Goliath. This is the daring faith of Elijah calling out to the false prophets at Mount Carmel. This is the daring faith of the apostles who would not shut up when they were told to by the authorities and they continued to preach the gospel. And this is the daring of the Israelites. See, we know the story. In fact, we're so familiar with the story. We might think, yeah, God caused the waters to part and they crossed through. Ho-hum. Not that big of a deal. He just kind of made a pathway and they walked according to the path. But notice, they can't just believe the promise. They can't just receive the promise. They have to risk everything. To walk between these walls of water and believe God's word. That is a faith that risks everything. And this is the greatest moment of faith in the history of God's people, the Israelites, that they do together as a nation. They risk their lives without any guarantee except the promise of God. God told them. Hebrews 11 informs us that the Egyptians came after them, but they were drowned. If you go back to the Exodus story, it says the Lord looked down from that pillar of fire and cloud, looked down from that, saw the Egyptians coming. He caused confusion among the Egyptian army, remember? Caused the chariot's wheels to come off. The book of Exodus says not one survived. Not one survived. Historians record that it would be nearly an entire generation before Egyptians would even venture near the Red Sea again. One of the greatest national acts of faith in Israel's entire history. Now, look in verse 30. We need to remember there's a 40-year gap between verse 29 and verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled, had been encircled for seven days. The Israelites who crossed the Red Sea are not the same Israelites who crossed the Jordan and now are facing Jericho. This story takes place a generation later in the book of Joshua. This time the writer of Hebrews condenses 83 verses into just two verses in Hebrews 11. Joshua tells the full story. The Israelites had just crossed the Jordan River. And again, God miraculously divided the water there. The people walk across on dry land. Only this time, they're trusting God to lead them into the land promised to their father Abraham. Their first stop is the walled fortress of Jericho. Jericho barred the entrance into Canaan. John Phillips, in Exploring Hebrew, said this, Jericho was a massive fortress standing in the way. The city was armed to the teeth with well-equipped, heavily armed legionnaires. And you contrast that with the Israelites, most of them carrying not weapons, but tools, maybe a pitchfork, maybe a cattle prod. And remember, this would have been the same city that the spies reported about. The report included words from Deuteronomy 128. Listen to this. The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. This is the report, if you remember, that threw the people into such a panic that they didn't want to go. 
They chose not to believe in God. They doubted God's promise. So they spend the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness. The two spies who said, yes, we can take them. Come on, let's go. Joshua and Caleb, they're the only two still living, but now 40 years older. So what's the plan? Again, we remember the story. Joshua records God commanded unusual strategy. Once a day, people to walk around the city of Jericho. Priests in the front of the procession carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Seven of them were to continue to blow their trumpets of ram's horn around the city once a day for six days. On the seventh day, seven times. And then that long trumpet blast and everybody shouts and then the walls fall down. We're not talking army here. We're talking ex-slaves. They don't understand military, but they understand this. This can't be the only plan, but it is the only plan. Can you imagine some of the soldiers on the top of the walls of Jericho watching all of this happening? Maybe even yelling down to some of the Israelites, What you doing? We're about to take your city. Well, how are you going to do that? So we're going to walk, walk, uh, march around. How long are you going to march? For seven days. And then what? Well, on the seventh day, we're going to march around seven times. And then what? And then we're going to blow a trumpet. And we'll shout. And then, can you imagine them not just laughing at the absurdity of it all? These would-be soldiers... We know that conversations couldn't have happened because God told them to march in silence. And it's a good thing because if they were talking, can you imagine by day three the grumbling going on? What are we doing? Not a stone has come loose. We should be building ladders. We should be doing something else, but not just marching. One author wrote this. How much mischief is created by people perpetually talking of the difficulties and the tasks confronting us? Listen, all real Christian service is full of difficulties. Satan will see to that. A missionary to China said this, There are three stages to God's will. Impossible, difficult, done. Impossible, difficult, done. There are always be difficulties, challenges, and disappointments. That's where there's no such thing as opportunity without opposition. And we see that throughout Scripture. In fact, often the greater the opportunity, the greater the opposition. I read this week also about a missionary who had baptized a chief in Burma. And so this huge crowd from the city came out to witness his baptism, but not to support him, but to make fun of him. And when he came up out of the water, they're laughing at him. What a fool. What a wet fool. How silly is that? Can you imagine? I mean, at our baptism as a church, when we see somebody, we get to witness their baptism. You know, we clap, we sing, we stand in line to hug them, to congratulate them. But can you imagine your contemporaries coming out just to make fun of you for that? What a test of faith this was for these armies to be laughing, jeering, mocking. Here's the principle. Not only is faith the willingness to obey God even when it seems hopeless. Second, it is willingness to follow God even when it seems ridiculous. 
Can you imagine walking around that 12th time on that seventh day, that 12th time total? Nothing's happened. Nothing's changed. Wondering what kind of military strategy is this anyway. But I'll walk one more. And I raised my voice. And they did. They did it. As a nation, they did it together. It was a moment of faith for all of them. When it seemed absurd, it didn't make sense. But they did it. The priest blew that long note on his trumpet. All the people began to shout. And I can't help but wonder, to their own amazement, the walls came down. Faith is willing to follow God, even when it seems ridiculous. Faith keeps walking, and the story even gets better. Kind of changed from the people of Israel as a whole to, again, one person that we don't think of as being likely to ever be included in a list of great men and women of faith. Look at verse 31, Hebrews 11. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Here's a sentence we'd never imagine reading in the faith chapter. Rahab the harlot. Sure, she was famous, but for all the wrong reasons. She had connections, but the wrong kind of connections. Probably the last person you and I would ever think would convert to faith in God. But she had heard the stories. To me, this is an interesting part of this whole conversion story, is that she had heard the story. Joshua's journal, again, tells us that she told the spies, Joshua 2, verse 10, We have heard about how the Lord dried up the water in the Red Sea. Not the River Jordan that they had just crossed right before coming to Jericho, but the Red Sea, which they had crossed 40 years ago. So get this. That story is still being talked about. She remembers what this God did for his people. And now... The people of Jericho know those people are knocking on their door, walking around their walls, realizing that's what's happening. Here's a prostitute with more faith in the entire generation of Israelites because she says, when I heard that, I knew that the Lord had given you the land and that your God is the God of heaven and earth. Joshua chapter 2 verse 11. So then what happens in the conversation, can I come to? I want to be a part of that. Is there room for me? Isn't that great? Some try to soften the edges of the story a little bit by saying the Hebrew word for harlot can also be translated as innkeeper. And those two often would work together in that same industry. But the trouble with that is the Septuagint. Remember the Septuagint is the Hebrew scriptures translated over into Greek. This was done a couple hundred years before Jesus' day. This was the, the Hebrew Bible that Jesus would quote from. And in the Septuagint, the Greek word means prostitute. More importantly, the word used by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, as well as James in his letter, also uh, talks about Rahab, and the word there is P-O-R-N-E, porne, where we get pornography, or translated fornicator. This is the word used. She didn't run a bed and breakfast. She ran a brothel. 
But why would we want to clean that story up? That's what makes the story so amazing. God demonstrates His grace to the unlikely prospect, who then becomes the most unlikely person in her entire city to demonstrate faith in the true God. And she'll stake her entire future on this story that she heard about what the God that these people did 40 years ago. And she believes. Faith is our willingness to forget the failure of our past and to risk everything about our future as we obey God. Let me close with two enduring truths about these stories of faith. First, your weakness doesn't hamper God's performance through your life. Your weakness doesn't hamper God's performance through your life. Griffith Thomas, a preacher and author who, among other things, helped form the Dallas Theological Seminary in the early 1900s, he wrote a commentary in Hebrews 11. He said this, Faith is convinced that God exists, that God is able, that God is ever-present, that God can perform what He wills, that God is as proven Himself and it will prove Himself faithful again. He wrote that like David of old, every believer has five small pebbles to use. And they are, God is, God has, God does, God can, and God will. Little pebbles really can work in the hands of everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill people. And God can make giants fall and waters part and sinners turn in faith. Your weakness doesn't hamper God's performance through your life. And then number two, your past doesn't hinder God's plans for your life. Look at Israel. If you were to summarize the children of Israel, would faith be at the top of your list? It wouldn't mind. I would think of complaining. Or at least hot and cold. They believe one day and then they fall away the next. And they believe and then they fall away. And they believe and they fall away. Not necessarily somebody you lift up as great people of faith. Look at Rahab. Don't let a checkered past keep you from believing in the future. And don't just stay stuck on Rahab's past. But look at her future. I can't help but think that's why... Rahab's story is included here. While we know her previous occupation, why does her occupation matter? She's a woman of faith. Why did they not say she's a seamstress or a cook or whatever other occupation she might have? I think it's included because it helps us to see the truth. All of us have things in our past that we want to move beyond. And she's rescued after the walls fall down, she and her family. And it isn't long for a godly Israelite man named Salmon who meets her and they marry. That name sounds familiar. It's because he is in that messianic line. They have a baby boy. They name him Boaz. Boaz, no doubt, grows up hearing the testimony about his mom's faith, how she came to faith, became a part of this family. He grew up watching his faithful Jewish father, his faithful mother, his little heart being prepared to do the same because he's going to 
marry a Gentile woman. Remember? Ruth. Ruth left her past nation of idolaters behind, trusted by faith in the God of Israel. And if you follow that family line, a couple of generations later, the great-great-grandson is King David. You keep following that line, and it's Jesus. Rahab the harlot is grafted in by faith into this family of believers. So don't just look at her past. Look at her future. And let that help us to have the same kind of faith. Faith is willingness to obey God even when it seems hopeless. Faith is willingness to follow God even when it seems ridiculous. Let's pray. God, we have times and moments where we believe and it's strong and sure. There's other times and moments where we doubt and we don't know and we wonder if you're there and if what you said is true. God, help us to have willingness to obey even when it seems hopeless. And God, help us to be willing to follow you even when it seems ridiculous. God, help us to be men and women of faith wherever we are with whatever is going on. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. If we can pray for you specifically in your walk with the Lord, if you'd like to be restored, if there's a special prayer request, we want to be your spiritual family and help you with that. Or if tonight you're ready to be baptized, we would love to witness and we will celebrate with you. Won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage?